friends, it's good to be with you and for some of you to be with you again. Uh, it's been a wonderful time down at the Shepherds Conference. Thank you for those of you who came to sing the other night. Uh, you really did a, a wonderful job. I'm told you all are thinking about discipleship this week. And so that's what we're going to do in our time together. Let's go to the Lord once more in time in prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the way you have loved us in Christ. We thank you for the way you have sent your only son to live and to die, to be raised and to ascend, all to call us to know you again as our Heavenly Father. We pray you would teach us from your word even now what it means for us to truly follow Christ. We ask in his name and for his glory and for our good. Amen. Amen. Friends, I want to ask you three basic questions that I want to consider from God's word about discipleship. Three basic questions. And the first is this. What is God like? What is God like? It seems if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ, uh, we want to know what the God that he told us about is like. To answer that, we're going to go to the letter of James. You'll open up to the book of James. Look at James chapter 2. Look there at the beginning of the chapter. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit at the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you... But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? Friends, let's stop there. I want to make sure we understand what James is saying. He's basically saying that lovelessness is ungodly. To not love is to not be like God. To make it more specific, like James does here, favoritism for carnal reasons is wrong for believers. It's right there in verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do not show favoritism. And as we keep reading to understand this more, James illustrates it. And he calls the listener close there. You see in the beginning of verse 5, he says, listen, my dear brothers. He's talking to Christians. And he tells them in verses 5 and 6 that their behavior at this point stands in sad contrast to God's own behavior. And they needed to literally be more godly. 
be more like God in this. We know what God is like how? Well, supremely from the way he's revealed himself in his word. Uh, like the statements he made to Israel in Deuteronomy 1.17. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of any man. Or even earlier in Leviticus 19, verse 15. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. And that's consistent with what we see in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Well, why would God teach us to be like this? Well, because He has been like this with us. That's why James begins here in verse 1 by saying, My brothers, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. So fundamental to understanding this chapter is grasping something of the irony of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ treating people according to what they think uh, they deserve or merit according to the flesh. Oh, of all people, we should not do that. How gross is that? How completely differently from the way God has treated us. Brothers and sisters, that the Lord's glory should envelop our every believer we see in our own eyes in His glory as He's redeemed us. God doesn't send financial aid application forms to enter the kingdom of heaven. There's no kind of carnal qualification like that. Friends, the Christian church should be the most impartial place in the world. In fact, the impartiality of our love to each other is one of the things that testifies to the truth of the gospel, to the way God has treated us by grace through Christ. Friends, we should be the ones who never bowed to racial slavery, let alone advocated it. We should have been the ones who never bowed to apartheid or to segregation, let alone championed it. Friends, we should be the ones that never bow to riches, that never values a person for what they have in this life. But praise God that when we have sinned in any of these ways, we have been doing it despite the clear teaching of the Word that we see here, like this passage in James 2. Praise God that though the Scripture has been twisted to support such things, the only way it can support such things is to be twisted. We are to behave in love. Praise God that His Word does not propagate the dehumanizing lies that so many others proudly teach and that they should be ashamed of. Because our God is not like that. James gives this example here in verses 2 to 4 of the different treatment of the rich and the poor. So in verse 2, that word that is translated company or assembly or meeting is literally the word uh, synagogue. It's the synagogue, which is usually used in reference to Jewish assemblies. Uh, some people thought this means this is a very early letter. I think it's probably true. I think James is one of the earliest letters in the New Testament. Probably Galatians and James are the earliest things we have written. It may simply be a descriptor, though, of a local church. Whatever the case may be in this, we can imagine the situation that James depicts. It seems that there were some wealthy people coming into Christian churches at this time, and the temptation for Christians, who were then, as is always the case, largely poor. It's just statistically true. They were largely poor. Their temptation would have been to serve the rich as they did in the culture at large. 
not to be careful to serve each other, including their poorest members. And so James says here in verse 5, how unlike God this is, how ungodly they're being in this. God is the one whom David celebrated, asked, Who is like you, O Lord? You rescue the poor from those too strong for them, the poor and needy from those who rob them. Friends, the sovereign God of the universe, uh, contrary to what you may reason from some TV preachers, has not set his love specially on the rich. Uh, that is not what we read in God's word at all. But you, says James here in verse 6, you, in contrast, you have insulted the poor by the way you've not welcomed them. Now, brothers and sisters, don't misunderstand this. James is not calling for hostility or even incivility to the rich. Don't give them a place to sit. He's not saying that at all. He's calling for that same care, that same solicitousness to be given to the poorest among us that that same tender care should mark the way we treat everyone made in God's image. And friends, I hope you appreciate the, the irony of the Christian's response to rich visitors. It's accentuated there in verses 6 and 7 by a sort of triple charge against the rich. You can imagine the situation, rich landlords dragging their poor Christian tenants to court for unpaid rents or taxes in arrears, something like that. Those who were persecuting Christians were powerful, they were rich, it's actually a lot of the same people who persecuted Christ, I think. But look at how James responds to Christians, poor Christians in these churches, being treated poorly. He responds as if Jesus Christ himself is being treated poorly. Reminds me of what Paul saw in that vision on the road to Damascus when the risen Christ appears to Saul who's going to persecute Christians in Damascus. And what does he say to them? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You understand, Jesus identifies that closely with his church, with his children purchased by his blood. So that, that fellow student that you are thinking ill of this morning, that you're speaking about negatively to someone else, that's how you're treating Jesus, if I'm understanding what James is saying here in James 2 ironic that we would ever treat anyone even those who would persecute us in any way other than with love remember jesus christ himself was persecuted and these christians they had been baptized in Jesus' name and so their persecutors could be said to be slandering christ's name but even that did not justify their treating them with anything other than love Friends, I don't want you to misunderstand. It's normal and right for you to love your family, uh, for you to love people like yourself. It's fine for college students to like college students. It's even fine for seniors to like seniors. That's okay. You know, we understand commonalities that we have. We're naturally predisposed to those. But none of those things being wrong, they're, they're normal. But you realize all of those things are no evidence of the gospel. Right? Pagan seniors at UCLA get along with each other you know pagan undergrads have things in common with undergrads uh, caucasians have things in common with caucasians you know asian americans have things in common with asian americans their experience you realize none of those relationships are wrong but none of those in and of themselves give any evidence of the gospel what starts giving evidence of the gospel is when the middle class church member treats the poor visitor with great respect and dignity 
It's when we start building friendships of real love across national boundaries or with someone of a different generation or a different political outlook on life. Remember what Jesus taught, if you love, this is Matthew 5, from the Sermon on the Mount, verses 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Friends, loving your friends and greeting your brothers is good, normal, pagan love. But there may be nothing of the gospel in it. You see, the gospel is the love that you have for those who are not like you in the flesh, but who have the same spirit within them. The presence of that normal love means nothing, religiously speaking, but the absence of gospel love, well, friends, that's what James is talking about here, because it's very unlike God. And we can't really follow a God if we don't know the most basic truths about him. And about the most basic truth you can find about the God of the Bible is that God is love. Friends, such gospel-like love is how we will help to show each other and the world what God is like. Again, quoting the Lord Jesus. You remember in John 13, he says in verses 34 and 35, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Because for, for one reason, God didn't intend just to save all one family and only that family, or all of one nation and only that nation, or all of one kind of people, all of the rich people and only rich people, or, or all of the poor people or only poor people. He didn't intend to save only one kind of person. God has as his plan from eternity past to save folks from every tribe and language and people and nation. And friends, this room right here gives testimony to what he's doing. Our local churches show that. And that's why in your local church you want to specifically work to love those who are not just like you. And I think particularly for undergraduates, that means loving people who are not in your stage of life. Helping out with the teenagers or the children at church. Uh, perhaps helping out with the senior citizens or doing things to help that young family that needs help on the weekends. Friends, all of that begins to show each other and the watching world something of what the God we claim to follow, of what this God is like. Let me give you a second question that's, I think, a major question for our discipleship. And we see it addressed here in James chapter 2. It's number 2. Okay, what does this God tell us to do? What does this God tell us to do? Look down at chapter 2, verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So basically what we see here is that a loveless person is a lawbreaker. 
a loveless person is a lawbreaker. Paul put it, uh, I mean, James put it positively there in verse 8, uh, where we're taught that it is right to, that, that we have an obligation to love others on, as ourselves. But in verse 9, he also then shows that carnal favoritism breaks God's law. Now, when he says the royal law here in Scripture, I'm not sure if he means the two greatest commandments, uh, the second one of which is, is this, or if James means to be describing all of God's law. I tend to think it's the latter, that he's describing all of God's law and calling it all royal. Because either way, the law is royal because it comes from the king. It comes from God himself. Uh, we know that this is the law that Jesus himself kept. Indeed, he exemplified this law. Jesus identified with the rejected. He cared for those. The religious leaders abused. He gave sight to the blind. He taught the ignorant. He saw the people and said they looked like sheep without a shepherd, and he came to be their shepherd. So he was known as fulfilling this law. We read in Luke chapter 20, his opponents beginning to question him in public, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Oh, there's a nice little cross-reference to write into your James chapter 1 in your margin there. That's Luke 20, verse 21. Those religious teachers did not, did not want to compliment Jesus publicly. If they are complimenting him publicly, it has to be something that they know everybody already knows. He is so strikingly impartial in the way he deals with the high and the mighty and with the low that we can say that and we're not going to be drawing anybody's attention to anything they hadn't already noticed. Everybody knows this is true. Jesus was the incarnation of God himself. The God whom we read in the Bible in Romans 2 does not show favoritism. Or in Galatians 2, the God who does not judge by external appearance. Well, in verses uh, here in James 2, in verses 12 and 13, we're reminded that God's law, the law, he says, that gives freedom, what he'd called up in chapter 1, verse 25, this law should govern our speech and our actions. The royal law of our loving our neighbors as ourselves challenges our prejudices. It's the perfect expression of God's will resting on the principle of the love of God, which is no respecter of persons. And he tells us that we should, as he says here in verse 13, be merciful. Friends, James here is really just echoing Jesus' warning. At the end of the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. It's not that our mercy activates God's mercy, but rather it evidences God's mercy. Our mercy evidences God's mercy. Someone who doesn't show mercy is really testifying themselves that they have not yet known God's mercy. Knowing how you've been loved, he says there in verse 12, will help you to love as you should, like he says in verse 8. Look back in chapter 1 in verse 22. James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. That's an important verse. The specific word heard uh, was the verse that James cites here in chapter 2, verse 8. He's quoting the Bible. He's quoting Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. So James is saying, okay, it's good you've all heard that you should love your neighbor as yourself. But 
commendable as it is that you've listened to that word, commendable even that you have continued to accept this as the word of God, but in order to really accept it, says James, this word has to be obeyed. The royal law, as James calls it here, makes no sense being heard, but not being obeyed. God's word never makes sense being heard, but not obeyed. Do we not understand it's God who's talking to us? Do we not understand that when, when God speaks to us, if we understand it's God who's speaking to us, how can we respond other than in obedience? But, uh, but especially in this case, His Word is about loving. Friends, what does it mean to be a scholar on the love of God and then to treat people poorly? It's like we've not understood anything that we're talking about or studying about. What, what could someone mean by saying that they accepted this word if then they turn around and treated people with anything other than love? So, my question to you, what do you mean if you say you've heard God's concern for people, regardless of their appearance, regardless of their financial means, if you don't reflect that in your concern in your own life for others? What does it mean that you have heard God's word or that you believe God's word? This word of loving neighbors as ourselves that they said that they accepted was not quite as easy as they may have imagined. But perhaps they were wondering if the problem was really so significant. You know, I mean, they were believing the Bible as the word of God. Maybe they were doing a lot of other things right. I mean, that's hardly the biggest concern, right? I mean, if you've got one time to speak to students at Master's College, I mean, you, you wouldn't pick this to talk about, would you? Just loving each other? I mean, what a five-year-old Sunday school class is that? Is it, just, is it that big a deal? Well, it's interesting. James doesn't seem to say that this option is open to them, that they can just choose to hear this and not believe it. You look at verse 9. He says, If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. I think sometimes people misunderstand God's law. They think of it like these arbitrary, assorted statutes. And they think that there's no particular unity to it, and maybe they can just pick and choose. They can find the weightier matters of the law, the more important things, and obey those and kind of ignore the small print. You know, ignore the non-essentials or, or the, just the details. They could pick and choose. But James here is saying they couldn't pick and choose between the laws they wanted to keep and the laws they didn't because keeping the ones that they found agreeable and breaking those they found difficult because what's his reason here? And that's not a rhetorical question. This is a small enough group and it's a classroom. So I want to know the reason. What is the reason that James gives here why they can't just pick and choose? Somebody. I want a hand, a loud voice, and a name, and a brief, concise, correct answer. <laughs> is that too much to ask? Why, can, why does James say here they can't just pick and choose? Show me a hand. I'll call on you. Yes, name? What's your name? Hey, Nate. So what's the answer? Oh, why can't they pick and choose which laws to obey? Well, 
you know, that's a good answer, but let's say that that's the law that they want to not obey. But they're going to be obeying other. They're not going to do idol worship. They're not going to do their sacrifices wrong. So he gives here an example in verses 8 and 9 about murder and adultery. What's his argument there? Which is the core of his argument for why we can't pick which parts of God's law to obey and disobey. Nate gave a good answer. I appreciate the courage. Somebody else. Wave your hand. I'm old. Yes. Tell me your name. Josephine. Yep, stumbling in one area is breaking the law, yes, but I want to know why that matters. What, signific- what significance is he pointing out here in verse 11, especially? Somebody else, yep, in the back. Josh? Yes, the same person gave both laws, and who's that person, Josh? Who is that person? Say what? One more time. God? (laughs) Yes. Thank you. So James is saying it's not that we build a logical system where we're playing some kind of game and showing how many laws I can pull out and not obey, but look, the whole structure still stands. He's saying that every single law given by God matters because, as Josh just said, who it's given by. It's given by God. Therefore, how we respond to any of God's instructions to us reflects our relationship with God. So we, we, it's just above our pay grade to decide these are important ones, these are unimportant ones. We, we cannot do that, he's arguing here. Any rejection of God's word is a rejection of God. I think verse 10 can sound really severe to people. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. But friends, that's why it's so important that we see exactly how he's arguing here. That's why I've kind of leaned in on that. Because I don't think we best understand God as being arbitrarily strict. Oh, he is a merciful God. But there is, what he's saying here, there is a coherence in all of God's law. It all is reflecting his character. It is his law. That's the argument in verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. That's the argument I want to make sure you follow. You are a lawbreaker regardless of which law you break because the same one has spoken all the law. And all of God's law reflects his standards. They contain and they express his will for us. That's what he's doing in revealing himself. So friends, when we respond negatively to God's law, we're showing what we think of his authority. I'm sure you yourselves, being students in a Christian college, were pretty perfect when you were at home with your parents. You know, but you remember those little, little brothers or sisters you have? Some of them were a real pain, right? I mean, some of them really did not know how to obey their parents at all. Uh, they're living illustrations to you of the truth of this text. <laughs> or I, I can even remember in my own life when I'm like four years old, you know, I'm standing in our front yard, and I don't know the name of our neighbor, but to, to my little four-year-old mind, he was called Neighbor. 
So we called the guy next door neighbor. And there was nothing between our yard. We were, we were I, was, I grew up in Kentucky, and so we had that, that stuff that for you guys is really rare. Probably means you guys are out there taking pictures all the time right now because you've got it right now. It's called grass. We, we did not have to cultivate it specially. It just sprang up, you know, every place. There's grass. Well, there was nothing between neighbor's grass and our grass. There was just, there was neighbor's yard and our yard. And I remember as a four-year-old standing out there with my mother standing over me. She's not 12 feet tall, but I was very short at, as a four-year-old. And she's looking at me and telling me, do not go in neighbor's yard unless he asks you. And I remember just looking at her and just putting my foot, oh, one foot over neighbor's yard and just staring at her while I did it, you know. And then she would take me and lovingly spank me, and I'd be standing back in our yard, and I'd just keep staring at her, and she would say, so don't go to neighbor's yard unless he invites you. And I would just stare at her, and I would put my foot back in neighbor's yard, and I would just keep staring at her. Well, friends, in doing that, I was showing a typical juvenile, perhaps unconverted, (laughs) rebellion against my mother's authority. I knew exactly what I was doing, and I was testing the limits. Now, my wife and I have uh, two kids, and they're both, one's in their 30s, one's one's in their 30s, one's in his 20s. So we haven't had little kids in a long time, but we have little kids around us all the time because our congregation is very young. So it's, and it's always fun, interesting, tragic, sad, extraordinary, causing memories to watch young parents in our church, particularly with their first child, when they begin to realize their child is a little bit different than a pet. <laughs> For a while, when you have a little newborn, it's a lot like having a pet, you know. First like a dog and then like a cat, you know as the evolutionary scale goes. Uh, but you, at some point, the parent realizes, oh, they know what they're doing. They are deliberately disobeying me, but it takes the parents with first-time child a long time to realize this. The people who've had kids all around them are realizing, yeah, they're being completely manipulated by that two-year-old. You know? But there, there's just no way around it. You know, you, you, everybody has to learn for themselves. That, that really, that, that four-year-old, very clear, is what we start doing very early on. That, that's part of fallen human nature. Part of fallen human nature is to express our disagreement, our disobedience to the best law in the universe. Our parents' loving laws that are dim reflections of God's loving law, but supremely to this kind of law of love that we find from God himself. Friend, I know if you're here, you're supposed to be a Christian, but let's just say between you and me, the truth is you're not a Christian. I want to make sure you understand this because this is big, big stuff. According to the Bible, you are by nature a lawbreaker. That's everybody. Everyone in our world is born naturally a breaker of God's law. And that's why this mention here in verse 13 of mercy is so sweet. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Friends, the good news that we as Christians have and know and believe is that Jesus perfectly kept the law. Perfectly kept the law. He he never did this to Mary once, I don't think. He perfectly kept the law. And yet, Jesus was despised and rejected. All of us in this room deserve to be despised and rejected. 
If people knew the truth about us, we should all be despised and rejected, supremely by God. Jesus, the only one ever to live who did not deserve to be despised and rejected, was despised and rejected, even to the point of dying on the cross. Why? So that any one of us who would repent of our sins and trust in Him could be forgiven, could be brought into a new relationship with our Heavenly Father. Friend, if you are not a Christian, I want you to understand this. I want you to turn from your sins and to trust in Christ. You're in a great place to do that. It may be some of the Christians around you here irritate you, but there's probably at least one that you see this mercy, this love, this truth in. Speak to that person today. Find out what it means for them to follow Jesus. Find out what it could mean for you to come to know God like this. If you want to know more about this, I got 100 copies of uh, a book out there in the lobby that you can have. First 100 of you get there, you can have it. It's uh, 12 sermons by me and a good friend of mine, Michael Lawrence, on Christ's death in our place. There's some modern theologians who've been teaching that this is not really taught clearly in the Bible, that it's a later idea that was put on the Scriptures. And so rather than writing an academic tome against that, what I think is a, a false idea, I decided with this brother preacher of mine, hey, let's just go back to the text of Scripture itself and let's just preach through crucial passages which show that this is deep in the structure of how God has made the world, to have a substitute in our place be a sacrifice acceptable to God. So from the Old and the New Testament, we preach on that theme uh, in these 12 chapters. So that's 100 copies out there for the first 100 of you who want them, or if there aren't 100 of you that want them, I'll figure out what to do with the books. <laughs> so brothers and sisters, we realize, when we realize that we are in no position ever to set aside God's law, we, we can't just decide to stop loving someone, or someone is too hard for us to love, or they're too unimportant for us to love, I think reading a chapter like James 2 helps us to realize the enormity of our offense against God in our sinning, how indebted we are to Him for His mercy. He has been so kind and merciful to us in a way that we ourselves have not deserved. And friends, I hope you see too in this the importance of believing the Bible to be the Word of God, uh, believing in expositional preaching like we're doing now, uh, of studying the Bible together uh, and also individually. I, I hope you see all that uh, of knowing and of being known by others honestly and transparently because our lives indicate our loves. And God tells us to act like Him, to be His disciples. And that shows itself primarily by the way we love. Let me ask you one more question to help us in this topic of discipleship. One more question, a third question. What does it mean if we don't love? What does it mean if we don't do it? There may be some of you who are sitting here today thinking, yeah, Mark, I know all this. My parents taught me this. Sunday school teachers taught me this. I've always known this. You, if you had tried to bring the most obvious message possible, you have succeeded. But, you know, it's, it's like the air I breathe. I mean, I should love other people. Okay, I, I got that. But, you know, I, I have to be realistic with the life that I live, the pressures I'm facing, the situations in my life that you don't know, you don't understand. And you've got to understand, this person has really done me wrong. You don't know what, what he said about me. You, you don't know what it meant for me when she did not give me that position. 
I appreciate what you're trying to do here. You just don't understand the particulars of my life. Well, in response to that, let's just look here in chapter 2, verse 14, and say, you know, if we don't keep the royal law found in Scripture to love our neighbor as ourselves, what does that mean? Chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith that is alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So friends, just hear James's point carefully here. No love, no life. You would summarize the last half of the chapter with those four words. No love, no life. Or said more theologically, faith without deeds is dead. It is no true faith. He poses the question there in verse 14, can faith without deeds save? And he answers, no, using four examples. The first two in verses 15 to 19 are negative examples. First he gives the example there in 15, 16, 17 of not helping the poor brother. And he comes to the conclusion that such inactive faith is dead. And then in verses 18, 19 he gives the example of the demons. And again he concludes from this that deedless faith is demon-like faith. Both of these are clear. They make his point powerfully. More conversation has been had about how James expresses himself in the rest of the chapter as he gives two positive examples of faith expressing itself in works. In verses 20 to 24, he reaches to the, to the father of the faith, perfect example. He goes to Abraham, who he says in verse 24 was justified by what he does. And people have speculated why James would write like this. And they're thinking maybe he was trying to correct some perversions of Paul's teaching. So not Paul's teaching but some perversions of Paul's teaching, because we know from Paul's own letters, like in Romans, he is writing to address a perversion of what he had taught. That may have been the case, but I don't think there's any reason to think that had to be the case. If you look in Jesus' own teaching, like in Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus taught very clearly that salvation came through faith in God's promises to provide a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus taught that he was that redeeming ransom. For that matter, the Old Testament itself uh, taught then, as it teaches now, justification by faith alone, and that's more of what we talk about in this book, it is well. Well, if we look back into the Old Testament scriptures about Abraham, we find in Genesis chapter 15, verse six, 
Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. And this statement comes before Abram ever offered up Isaac. It was decades later that Abram did that. It's recounted in Genesis 22. So the point here in James 2 of verse 23 was that Abraham's faith in God implied, even promised obedience to God. And that is exactly what ended up happening. Abraham's work of obedience was, in that sense, faith-filled. It was faith-directed. It was the fulfillment, the flowering of Genesis 15, where righteousness was credited to him as simple faith. So when, when he offers up Isaac in Genesis 22, that is an expression of his faith. And it's the faith that saves. So when James writes here in verse 24, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone, I think James is countering not false ideas about the imputation of righteousness by faith alone, which is how the Roman Catholic Church wrongly took this verse and used it during the Reformation. That's not what James is countering. What James is countering is the false ideas about the demonstration of righteousness through so-called faith that doesn't have any works. But James is clear that a faith that produces no fruit is not the faith he's talking about. It's not true saving faith. What Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac did was not justify him in that first sense. It did not credit righteousness to him. But in a secondary sense of making his previously hidden righteousness prove itself. Very much like what James in chapter 1 talks about, about trials. You know, he says in James 1, 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Well, it's not that you should really just laugh when a trial comes. He's not saying you should count it as joy in that sense. But he's saying this is the occasion that God uses to, trust, uh, to try our trust in Him. Well, he's, he's really using a very similar idea here in chapter 2 about faith and showing that the, the works in our life prove the righteousness that we already have by faith. I think the Apostle Paul was in a different conversation. Paul was confronting Judaizers who taught that the human condition was part of the ground of God's acceptance of us. The ground of God's acceptance would be the way I would love other people. That's what Paul was fighting when they were being taught that. James, I think, on the other hand, is confronting on the opposite side what you call mere mentalists. People who think, yeah, I've got this right doctrine in my head, therefore I'm okay. And James is saying, look, demons have the right doctrine in their head. Demons will do better than any of you here will on a theology exam. They got the answers. But it doesn't, it doesn't capture them and transform them. Uh, also note that there's no consideration here of the kind of popular good works of general charity. There's no religious pilgrimages or prayers or rituals and views here. You look at this example of Abraham. You look at this example of Rahab. Their lives justified. That is, they proved and demonstrated the faith that their words showed they already had. Abraham walked out his faith. That's how you know it's real. Rahab walked out her faith. That's how we could tell that it was real. I think the question that will help us is to think, what would have happened if Abraham would have refused to offer Isaac? Abraham, offer your only son. No, 
all the promises you've made to me are going to be fulfilled in him. We waited years for him. And now we've waited years and he's grown up. No, God, you promised. What if he had refused to offer Isaac? I think it would have made it clear that his claim earlier that he believed God's promise wasn't true. It would have made it clear that Abram was really an unbeliever, ultimately. He appeared to believe for a while, but he did not continue to believe. But friends, Abraham did believe. So we read in Hebrews 11, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned, here it is, that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So friend, James 1 teaches us that trials test our faith. And James 2 teaches us that obedience shows the truth of our faith. Our trials should verify our faith, even as Abraham's did his faith. Or as Paul put it in Galatians 6, the only, or Galatians 5, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. I love the way Martin Luther talked about this. Luther said, oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it to not be doing good works incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done them and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but he knows neither what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. And then James' final example here is the example of Rahab. And it reinforces that understanding that the faith that is without deeds is without life. Rahab clearly believed, though. We know that from her words and from the action she took that confirmed she really meant those words she spoke. So, friend, when any theological confusion is laid aside, I think these verses can leave us with an even more pointed personal confusion. Let's say you're thinking, okay, Mark, I've got the meaning of James 2, but now I have to confess I'm a little confused about myself. Am I saved if I still sin? Does this mean that my faith is dead? Because if you have a conscience at all, you have felt convicted, reading James chapter 2, with these references to a lack of love. Well, my answer, my dear Christian brother and sister, is the same that Paul would give. Look over in Galatians 5. We don't need to turn there now, but you know the passage, the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit. Read that list this afternoon. Ask yourself which more nearly reflects your life. Ask the friends that know you well. If you're really troubled, go to one of the elders at your church. What evidence is there in your life that you really believe what you say you believe? If there is none then james is telling you here to realize your spiritually useless even dangerously demon-like state and to repent and believe 
Because if you really believe, your life will change. If you need help in determining, that's one of the things the local church is all about, friends. Go to the church you're a member of. Ask someone there who knows you to sit down with you. And if no one knows you in your local church, you need to make sure a mature Christian gets to know you. Take this passage very seriously. If you want to think about discipleship, you will love if you're really a disciple. And the lack of love suggests a lack of real discipleship. Ask if your faith shows itself in obedience. God is loving. God calls us to be loving. And if love does not mark our lives, what reason do we have for for thinking that we're following Christ at all? Let's pray. Lord, I'm not sure what it would be like to be in that church in the first century to receive this letter from James. We pray that you would convict our own hearts. We pray you would teach us what it means to truly trust in you. And we pray, Lord, that we would show our love. And by showing our love, that we would show our faith and trust in you. We ask this all in Jesus' name.